live and in color from the NBC News Radio Broadcasting Studios of KCAA, 1050 AM, 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM, located in beautiful Southern California and in parallel from the Turfs Up Radio Studio in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Thanks for tuning in to the Water Zone Show this evening. Well, a pleasant evening. I'm Rob Starr, along with Mr. Chris Davies. And this is our world, the Water Zone. So welcome, everybody. Hope everybody's having a great afternoon or evening, uh, depending on where you are located and listening into the show. And I uh, want to welcome Mr. Chris Davy. Chris, how are you out in California? It's pretty cold here. It's in the 55 degrees here. What's it in California? We're we're about on the same temperature slope as you, buddy, in the uh, low to mid-50s right now. But the incident here that's happening is the wind, buddy, because we're in... Yet another in a long line of wind events that happened last night and another one scheduled for tomorrow night, Friday night into Saturday. So batten down the hatches one more time. Wow. I know you were working on getting trees removed. and uh, Is that all taken care of? Is your yard all cleaned out or you still got tons of tons of stuff to take care of there? No, no. Thankfully, I've uh, I've gotten all the debris and tree limbs and everything done, and I've uh, completely compressed what was left of, of my shed and taking it to the to the uh, recycler. So, so that's all done. Just now, preparing to, you know, take all my plants and bring them in the garage and things like that. So I'll do that tomorrow. Oh, good, good, good. I, I'm I'm sorry. I thought you know you sent me the pictures and I was it was devastating to see all the damage that you. Uh, Almost like a tornado came by your place, and and you know, a couple, couple of days after, I told you we got it out here in in the uh, Arizona area, and uh, it was pretty brutal. Uh, nothing as bad as what you had, luck, luckily. I, I think some of the mountains that are around here blocked it, but we still had a pretty pretty high uh, high winds, right about 40, 40 miles per hour. Uh, but uh, anyway, it was a beautiful day today. And uh, anything new in uh, California for you? Uh, Rob, so there's a lot of news in California, and I think we have someone here waiting to talk to us who can give us the skinny, the low down, the one, two, three. <laughs> well, that's, oh. that's, that's why I, I gave you that little intro, so you can introduce <laughs> her. <laughs> Chris so Austin. Oh, well, I thought you usually usually say, you know, I'm the purveyor of Maven's notebook. I was waiting for my cue, but oh. okay. <laughs> I thought we'd change up a little bit today. Okay, surprise! Yeah. Uh, yeah, hey, welcome to the world of California water. Uh, did, did, you want, did you want a more formal introduction? Well, what? I'm used to the, your usual spiel. So. Oh, okay. Well, we'll try this. So, ladies and gentlemen, guys and gals, thanks for listening in. Our first special guest, the purveyor of Maven's Notebook, Miss Chris Austin. Hey, <laughs> how you doing, everybody? <laughs> Is that better? That much better. Much better. Okay. So, hi, yeah. Chris. How you doing? You're up in 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 uh, California in the northern part. Um, yeah, I'm up now here in Chico, and so I am not missing those winds that Chris Davy is talking about down there. We used to get them a lot where I lived before, but now I'm up here. But you know, up here, our weather story isn't the wind as much as it is that, like you know, there's no precipitation. <laughs> January yeah. was very dry. We actually had to start turning on our our sprinkler systems because we didn't get any uh, rain here in January, really, to speak of. And, you know, we got to keep everything alive. Uh, you well, know, it's, is it true that the parched January can, can lead to some river closures? 
Well, yeah, you know, we we had such a great December, and we we had all those big storms that rolled through, and that made our you know the snow supply was like I mean you know really mind blowing averages, 160 percent of the average and stuff. But then, as it has happened before, uh, the skies dried up. And so everything has been, uh, you know, all that largesse delivered in December is now down to a slightly below average. Uh, and there is no precipitation in sight. So, you know, that that's a problem. <laughs> that's a problem. Now, you know, I have said before, and I said it when we had all that precipitation, you know, it's not over yet. Uh, there's a lot more, you know, the season to come. And that is still true. So it's not time to start freaking out about, you know, super dry conditions. But it's also not the time to start uh, thinking we're out of the woods because we aren't. Um, it's still could go either way and we're just not going to know until you know April or May uh we've had marches that have been very very wet all miracle marches there's awesome Aprils and you know, miracle Mays even in some in some cases but uh we're just going to have to wait and see the hand that mother nature deals us but uh, pretty much all those great storms that rolled through in December uh, pretty much melted down to slightly below average conditions with no precipitation in sight. So we'll Mr. see. So, Mr. Davy, jump right in. Yeah, thanks, Chris. I was just looking at the at the California Water News, right, and all the stuff that's going that's going on there. Of course, last week was the, you know, the famous annual uh, snowpack check where everybody goes up there and and uh, walks out in the big uh, meadow of snow in their parkas, and um, it was it was dismaying to say the least. Would you agree? Well, yeah, to a certain extent, but not as dismaying as when uh, you know Governor Brown. Uh, way back in 2014 or 2015, don't remember exactly when, went out there and there was no snow on the ground. But, you know, the, the whole thing about this uh, this media event, and that's what it is, it's a media event, is they're going out and they're taking a survey in one particular spot, uh, which happens to be in a meadow, happens to be in the Sierras. Uh, and you know, it's widely understood by everyone who watches this that, you know, you can't measure a snowpack by sampling at one spot, okay? It's just, the, the, the Sierras are a very large uh, mountain range, and one spot just doesn't cover it. Uh, but it, it's, so it's more of a media event to get people's attention to the problem more so than anything that really means much of anything. They have all sorts of uh, sensors out there, electronic sensors and, you know, snow pillows and meteorology stations. 
uh, all over the Sierra to try and capture this. And, you know, and we ought, but even so, it's not quite indicative of what it is. So what's really been interesting is uh, the work that NASA has been doing. I think there's been an effort in general to take the technology that NASA has and bring it down to the level where it means something to the people on Earth. And uh, so there's a number of ways that they're doing this. And one of them is this airborne snow observatory, which flies over the Sierras and kind of can scan the snow and come up with a much more accurate uh, reading of how much snow there is up there. And it's also not how much snow is there, but what is the water content of that snow? Because there's dry snow and there's wet snow. And, you know, the difference in what that melts down to uh, can be substantial. So, but the Airborne Snow Observatory, that they're doing these flights over the Sierra Nevada and they're trying to get more accurate readings, which is important because... You know, these reservoirs are managed not only for water supply, but for flood control. So understanding how much water is in the snowpack above the reservoir is important because it it really determines how much water you can store in that reservoir uh, or what you need to get out, uh, you know, to be prepared for a flood. Hey, so let me let me ask another question because just just looking at some of the questions that are <clears throat> coming in from the from the listeners, right? There's a kind of an acronym or a catchphrase out there that people are talking about, and that is that's the uh, Central Valley 30 for 30. So I mean, that's kind of looking at it. Right? I I get it. Is there sort of a you know how would you describe that? Is that is it um, you know is it a, is it a key goal for just the Central Valley or for the whole state? Actually, uh, it's kind of a goal for the entire nation because Biden has sort of signed on to this idea of preserving 30% of our nation's land and resources, you know, in in protection. We can't develop every square inch of, you know, the United States. Uh, We do need wild areas and areas and spaces for critters. So, you know, there's a nationwide effort. Actually, I would say it's global. I do believe that the UN is kind of bought into this idea of 30%. Um, so there's 30 by 30, and there's a national version, and there's also the state version, because Newsom signed on to this. And right, so, right. you know, we have a lot of these conservation organizations are looking at, you know, how how we're going to make this happen. And, you know, they see the Central Valley as a a big place for this to occur. And, you know, we really need to be having, you know, good habitat in some areas in the Central Valley. You know, it's developed, it's farmed, but, but we need to find a way to sort of share some of those spaces. And, you know, as we implement groundwater management, it really is going to mean, uh, you know, bottom line, that some land is going to have to come out of production. 
so you know what are we going to do with this land and part of that part of the plans for that include you know creating habitat and areas of preservation uh within the central valley and that's you know if we're going to if we're going to preserve 30% of california's land and resources then you know the central valley is going to be part of that uh part of that effort yeah has has to happen hey i was i was reading in your in your uh, articles this morning about how the uh, kings county town denies a massive sandwich uh, water pipeline which is supposed to help move the wastewater out of there well what, yeah well it's not you know I think there, it's a little more than the wastewater issue, which apparently the town says, hey, that's news to us. No, there is a, a farmer in the San Joaquin Valley who owns a substantial amount of land who is building a pipeline from one end of the valley kind of going over to the other. And you know, there's a lot of questions about this pipeline and what are you going to put in it? What water are you going to put in it, uh, and where is it going, and what are you going to use it for? And and they're not really answering any questions. Uh, you know, the thing is, when it comes to water in the San Joaquin Valley, if you're pumping groundwater, you're only can use that on the overlying lands if you own them. If you don't, then you're appropriating groundwater and you need to have a, a license for that. Uh, so this powerful farmer who has overlying land over groundwater is building a big pipe. Uh, I think the assumption is that he's trying to supply his lands on the other side of the San Joaquin Valley with this water because they're very water short over there. Um, I think that's kind of what people think is happening, and I, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but this big pipeline's going through, right? And he's not really having to explain what he's doing with it, and people are very nervous about that. You know, we have uh, sustainable groundwater management now in the San Joaquin Valley, and it's San Joaquin Valley is all parsed up into these little groundwater basins. Uh, they're sub-basins. Uh, I think the fallacy of the idea is that really the San Joaquin Valley is one big groundwater basin, but it is, or actually the whole Central Valley in a sense is, but it's too big to manage like that. So it's all subdivided. <laughs> but if you're in one sub-basin, you don't want a farmer shipping out groundwater in your basin to some other basin uh, that uh, is going to, I mean, because all these basins have to have to balance. So, you know, you can't like all of a sudden ship a whole bunch of water out. So we're going to see what will happen with this. There's a lot of interest in it and a lot of media attention at this point. I thought the, the actual hilarious part was, you know, this one uh, canal company in the San Joaquin Valley actually brought in big pieces of equipment to block the, the uh, extension of this pipeline across their canal. 
the picture is kind of funny in a way because they really did it, you know, yeah. <laughs> if you wanted to mess it up, there it was. Uh, but, you know, again, the big question is, what is he going to put in this pipeline? Where is it going? And what does that mean to other users, you know, of water in the area? So we'll yeah. see. Well, Chris, what's, what's the routine when, when this farmer decided he wanted to build this pipeline? He had to submit something to somebody or some organization. I'm to... not sure he had to if it's going across his property. Mm. And then I think, you know, he had to, there were some issues where he had to acquire rights away. I'm not sure what the permitting is on it. Uh, but it's like, as long as he's going across his own property, I don't think that, you know, that anyone can object to that. It's just, you know. Yeah, where's he, uh, yeah, he getting the water from? <laughs> yeah, and what are you going to put in it? And then it, they said, oh, we're going to put in, you know, we're, they, they made reference to a small community and said, we're going to take their wastewater. But then the, that small community said, you know, huh, what? <laughs> You're going to do what? That's news to us. Yeah. So, you know, we'll see. A lot of questions on it, especially in the world of groundwater management, where you have to manage and balance your basins. You don't want some one of your farmers shipping out large amounts of volume of water to another side of the valley. Uh, I mean, because everybody's going to suffer with that. So we'll see. It's uh, That's the big hot story in the San Joaquin Valley these days. Yeah, other other than the drought, of course, right? So so before we get to the bottom of the hour, Chris, so, you know, parts of the commentary that I read, listener commentary asking about, you know, is there any bright spot after this miserably dry January, right? All the reports that we see, even even the uh, reports in Maven's notebook, because look, Chris, I look, I look at the headlines and go through, you know, the articles in there and I... I get a good gauge about how many articles there are about the drought and, uh, you know, rivers closing and, you know, the the driest uh, January on record for the for the San Francisco Bay Area, right? The, are there, you know, is it, are we on the cusp of, um, of getting back into real drought measures here in California, or is that probably a year away if we, even oh. if we don't get any wet weather? No, I I think that it will come a lot faster than that. Yeah, me uh, too. I, you know, if if we have another dry year, uh, will it it'll be known by March or April? Uh, I mean, we'll see what happens. People are always optimistic, but you know, I mean, we also have to be realistic. Uh, you know, it's it's only February third. Uh. There's still, you know, February, March, and April to go. Those are, you know, where a lot of precipitation falls. It only takes a handful of storms to make a difference for California's water supply if they're good, beefy storms. So it's not time to be, wor to be you know, well, I think we should always be concerned about using water in the most efficient way as possible. But I don't think it's it's time yet to give up 
on uh, no wet year, but it's also not time to, you know, think that the drought is over either. The jury's out. The fat lady has not even come into the building yet. You know, <laughs> we we will know in in April or May. Uh, and and yeah, if it's a dry year, then we can expect it's going to be tough. Um, well, you know, but, a popular thing here in California is the March miracle, right, Chris? I mean, it's happened before um, on on several occasions, so we could see it again. It, we could, or you know, sometimes it's an awesome April. Uh, you never know. So, uh, you know, it's happened before. California's hydrology is nothing if not variable, highly variable. So, you know, it it may it may happen yet. It's not time for despair yet. That's that's good to know. Hey, one one last thing. I I, I know that uh, Cal, uh, California State Senators Nielsen and Borges, um, they also they all. Um, they announced the bill, I guess it's HB 890, uh, to ensure storage in uh, in wet years versus sending it out to the sea, which is kind of what I usually argue about. Uh, you know, why are we dumping this stuff back into the bay and all this other stuff, and they need a place to put this extra water? What what do you say? You think there's going to be bipartisan agreement on this? Oh, highly doubtful. But, <laughs> I mean, boy, you asked a, a tough question with only a few minutes left to go. You know, I mean, it's a teaser for next week's show. It's it's not about you know water flowing out to the sea. I mean, the delta is this interface between fresh water and seawater, and it's a tidally influenced uh, you know system. And we have to put water out. We have to release fresh water from the reservoirs to push the salinity out so it doesn't get too far in the delta. Otherwise, it can't be used for agriculture or or drinking water or anything. So this idea that, you know, water is flowing out to the delta and that's wasted is not entirely true because some of that has to be there. If we didn't release water from the reservoirs, then the salinity would intrude uh, far into the delta, would probably reach the export pumps. There wouldn't be able to be agriculture in the delta or drinking water for anybody. Or so, or anything, right. Yeah, so some water has to go out. And, and the estimates I've seen on that are about 4 million acre feet a year on minimum has to go out has to be released from the reservoirs in order to keep the salinity at bay. Otherwise, we all lose. That's why they built the drought barrier was to, yeah. uh, you know, to prevent salinity intruding too far into the into the delta. You know, um, but yeah, do we need water storage? Probably. Um, you know, we have a lot of this excess budget funds, and there are those that would like to see that go to water storage in the state. Um, you know, the ballot measure that was being proposed that would take a percent of the general fund and devote that to water projects, uh, they, they they just didn't have the signatures or the support to get it done. So that ballot measure is not in the running anymore. Uh, it'd be a hell of a thing to try to explain to people in front of the grocery store. But <laughs> oh, okay, well that clears it up. <laughs> <laughs> 
if it's you know California water, it's clear as mud, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, Chris. We appreciate you coming on. And like I said, I like to tease you on, on, on things that I know is going to take longer to talk about. And, 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 and maybe we should just take one topic for the whole show and, and, and go with you for that for your, for your segment. And you can certainly go more than more than half the show if you want to. You know that. And uh, anyway, uh, our listeners, uh, if you really want to get the best in, in California water news, go to mavensnotebook.com. Uh, it's a great place to be a subscriber. It's a great place to be a sponsor. Uh, it comes up on your computer every single morning. It's great news. Chris and I, Chris Davey and I read it every single day, and we keep up on things that uh, we can't do during the day because we have real jobs at the Toro Company. But uh, but Chris meanders all over the place, and she knows everybody, and it's a lot easier getting the news from her, and then we can call the people up and give them what we think about it. But uh, anyway, please go to mavensnotebook.com. It's a great place again. Chris, thank you very much for being on as usual, and uh, have a great week. We'll talk to you next week. All right. Good evening, everybody. Bye, Chris. All right. So we're going to take a short break for our sponsors, and we'll be right back with our featured guest, uh, who's somebody pretty wonderful and new to the industry. So uh, stick around. You'll get to hear some great stuff. We'll be right back in uh, two minutes. This is 1050 AM KCAA Loma Linda and 106.5 FM Yucaipa. They love you. They love you not. They love you. Satisfying your customers, it's a full-time job. Want an easy way to make them happy? Try having your ornamentals delivered straight to the job site with Nursery Direct. Could save you and your clients a pretty peony. Think about it, instead of driving to the nearest nursery, picking up the order, and then driving to the job site, the crew's able to begin work right away. That cuts time and labor. Savings you can pass on to your customers, and you can get your plants delivered direct, even if you don't have a nursery branch in your area. Here's another quick tip. Keep a substitutions list on standby for every project, so your team knows what to do in case a plant isn't in stock, because there's nothing customers appreciate more than a project that finishes on time and on budget. They love you. They really love you. Aww. If you knew there was a pipe cement that works better than the one you're currently using, is better for you and the environment, and costs the same or less, would you buy it? Well, no-brainer, right? Weldon, the trusted leader in solvent cements for over 60 years, is pleased to introduce a new line of solvent cements that does all that. Introducing the Eco-Series line of solvent cements for PVC piping systems. Not only does it work great and set fast, it also has 30% lower solvent emissions and less smelly fumes, a better workplace environment when you're installing pipes. But don't just take our word for it. EcoSeries products are the only solvent cements that are Green Seal certified for environmental innovation for effective performance, improved working conditions, and for use with potable water. Now available in a medium-bodied fast-setting blue formula, 905 Eco, and a regular-bodied fast-setting clear formula, 900 Eco. Pick up a can today from your local distributor and see, smell, and feel the difference, just like Joe Sweat, president of Sunrise Irrigation, did. He said, after using Weldon's 905 Eco, we immediately noticed the application was smooth and there was noticeably less odor than other blue solvent cements on the market. The guys love it. To learn more about Eco solvent cements from Weldon, 
Visit the website at www.welldone.com or call the Technical Service Hotline at 877-477-8327. That's 877-477-8327. K-C-A-A. All right, uh, welcome back to the second half of The Water Zone. I'm Rob Starlong with Mr. Chris Davey, and we are the hosts of The Water Zone. And Chris, I'll let you uh, do the intro on our astute guest. I'd appreciate it. No, and we're, we're just so excited here because, as you said in the, in the lead-up at the end of the first half, this is somebody that uh, our listeners, I think, will appreciate uh, hearing tonight. Kind of a, a little green to our industry, but it's the new CEO of the Irrigation Association. Um, her name is Natasha Rankin. She's on the show with us tonight, and uh, we'd like to welcome her on behalf of Ron and uh, the Water Zone crew here. Welcome, Natasha. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Rob. Love having the opportunity to join you this evening. It's you know great. What? I we got... yeah, no. Sorry, Rob. Go ahead, buddy. I was no, gonna, no. I was <laughs> it's, hard. it's a little different, as I always tell our audience, since we're working, we're all working remote. And we're not at the studio because we're trying to uh, keep clear of COVID that could uh, be hanging around the microphones. So uh, we're doing this remote. Uh, but, uh, you know, sorry we didn't get an opportunity to meet you at the IA show directly. I know you were busy getting introduced to thousands of people. And we were running around doing uh, interviews for everybody because we were broadcasting live from, from there on Up Radio. So we were very excited. But, uh, again, thank you very much for coming on, on the show. Um, Chris, I'll, I'll let you lead off. Uh, I'd appreciate it. Uh, um, I didn't have, you know, I didn't have that part of the script for you, uh, Rob. So otherwise, I would have, would have acqui- acquiesced the microphone for you. But so, um, listen, Natasha, you, we have this general question that we pretty much always ask. It's sort of the bellwether question from from the Water Zone guys here, and we ask it to everybody when they're new on the program. And it's 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 essentially, you know, what what interested you in this position? How did you come to accept the IA leadership role? There's a story behind it, um, uh, we know, and we'd love to hear you tell it. Well, I, I love sharing it because, to me, the Irrigation Association, in some ways, is coming back to my roots. I'm originally from the Willamette Valley in Oregon, and one of the most fertile areas of the country, and my family... Um, extended family was involved in farming and ranching. And so the the issues around wise water management, the environment and its impact on businesses, communities, and all of us was something that those were conversation topics around the dinner table. Um, And I did leave Oregon to come to DC to try and change the world for the better. And, um, but that draw towards, um, towards the environment and sustainability and um, all that, that that makes our communities and our families, our businesses, our nation, really our world, uh, successful, safe, healthy, uh, really appealed to me. That's what, that's what really brought me into the Irrigation Association. Good stuff uh, for a discussion around the dinner table, for sure. And, and having Definitely. spent, yeah, having spent, some time uh, up in uh, Oregon, Washington, especially for a, a stint for a company up in Walla Walla for a while uh, up there. Very familiar with the, with, with the area. I'm going to bet you have an appreciation for the wines of the area. 
Oh, you would be very correct in that. <laughs> <laughs> I am quite partial to an, an Oregon Pinot Noir, I, I have to admit. Although it was very surprising when I started to see all those wines showing up in, in these amazing restaurants all really all across the country and, and the world, even experienced one in Paris, although it was like being in Paris and experiencing a taste of home. Wow, that's, that, that's terrific. Well, you know, well, let's, let's, uh, I'm going to let Rob ask a couple of questions here, but before we do that, let's go a little bit deeper into your, into your background a little bit. Maybe tell us a little bit about your past jobs uh, and your, your experience in those jobs and sort of how it, how it, uh, it, it helps you for, for this uh, very great big task you've got on your plate now. <laughs> well, you know, I, I mentioned I, I came to D.C. For ultimately for university, and I stayed. And part of what attracted me to this part of the country was I wanted to make a difference. And I've been incredibly lucky that my professional career has been in service as a chief executive and other chief level roles in, in associations and trade associations as well. And for me, what is fabulous is being able to bring the best of business and corporate responsibility together with civic responsibility. And, and that's what I think associations do. And the IA is a wonderful opportunity to bring together, um, at this point, nearly 20 years of, of association and 30 years of industry experience to, to an organization where I, I have a passion for the mission. I have an excitement about learning more about the industry and its members and really looking forward to what's next. That's pretty good for a 29-year-old person. So, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you are kind. Uh, thank you. Uh, so so I, know, I know this is all new to you, at least not running a business. I know you know how to do that well. But how are you assimilating to the job so far and the people that you've met? Because you're not the only new person that the IA has. They're going through, uh, I guess the best word is a gray wave where some of them have retired and things. So, But it's getting a fresh look, bringing you in and, and doing what you know how to do. So how, how how's this all coming together for you? The best part is that I'm surrounded by wonderful people. Um, I had a fabulous introduction to the Irrigation Association by having that opportunity to go to the IA show in, in San Diego in December. And what, while I didn't have a chance to meet you both, I did have a chance to meet some of our members and partners and as well as the, the IA staff. And in some ways I was like a kid in a candy store. Um, this, it was a wonderful place to be able to see the IA come to life and to see irrigation and the, and the businesses and the professionals, sharing their passion, sharing their expertise, and I learn, I was learning. And that's really where I'm at at, at this stage in, in coming on board to the IA is I'm deep in immersion. I want to listen and absorb and learn so that I can turn that around and help position the, the irrigation industry and the IA for continued sustainability and growth. Yeah, that's certainly not a, a small task to, to take on. But, you know, the, I, the IA has a broad strategy, both authority on irrigation and mission defined as advocacy and education and professional development, basically. On advocacy standards and codes, government affairs, public affairs, uh, do you see more of that to expand from the IA? Absolutely, and more focused. 
Um, I, I think one of the, the best parts about being new to an industry is I, I don't come with any preconceived notions about what the issues are, what the topics of concern, what's timely, relevant, and valued. And so during this time of being able to connect with members, my board members, member companies, our partners, and our staff, and, and other technical and, and functional experts, I'm listening for what's next. And when, I, when I'm hearing, you know, I, I hear and am trying to put together for that what's next around all those issues. You know, I, I, I see advocacy, um, you know, what I'm hearing when it comes to advocacy, professional development, and the and our, our really our, our broader, to me, the broader issue around being that trusted and, and credible authoritative voice on irrigation. I think there are a number of opportunities that we can build on. Excellent. Natasha, let me let me interject a bit because just reading some of the listener comments here. <laughs> and there's obviously we've got some new listeners here. Many of our uh, audience are IA members, know the IA, um, and, and know and know the staff. And I'm not trying to um, put you on the spot, but a couple of the newbies that look like they're asking, you know, kind of what the what are the specs for the IA? Um, you know, how many members are there? I think there's around thirteen hundred if I remember if I remember right. Um, I, mem yeah. member agencies. I'm, I'm, am I still close? You are, and um, we're looking to grow that. Um, you know what we're what we're seeing is that we have an opportunity to maybe re-engage with with members on um, just those core just those core focus areas that you brought up around our advocacy um, and making sure that we are uh, listening to our members and the topics that that we need to be focusing on when it comes to uh, legislation and regulatory needs, as well as, you know, standards and codes. When it comes to, you know, professional development, I, I listened to um, our, our president, John Newland, I listened to his, um, his show from November talking about workforce development. That's something I'm hearing as well of, of the, the real need to ensure that we're bringing in, that we're enticing and bringing in this next generation of irrigators, that's a that's a major focus as well. And you know, for 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 those who are in the industry as well, to make sure that we're highlighting the the innovation and and the trends and the foresight that are absolutely necessary for the for the continued success of of the industry and those businesses. Rob and I couldn't agree with you more. We are we are such our advocates ourselves for for training and education, uh, recruitment, doing everything we can at trade show. We and we, and, and Rob and I go to a lot, um, and yeah, and and also local or state events that we go to. We are always looking to you know shine a light on the irrigation industry and say, look guys, you know if you're looking for something, especially at colleges and universities, look guys, you're looking for something to do. Here's a great career path right here. It's a great industry to be involved with. It has a mission. It has a purpose. It has values. You improve people's lives. You improve the environment. You improve your very own neighborhood as you, uh, uh, if you dedicate yourself to, uh, uh, to this industry. Um, you know, and and we always get, uh, yeah, we always get a bunch of interest, don't we, Rob? Yeah. And now, now that you, uh, Natasha, joined the ranks of WOW, which I point <laughs> as, as, as women of water. And there's and what I was going to say, there's 
lots more women entering this industry, uh, yeah. both, both through the IA, both for water agencies, both through the American Water Works Association. And, and that's a great thing. I, I mean, and they bring a lot of smarts and a lot of good ideas. And I, and I think that's a necessary thing to, to, to keep, keep growing the industry and the awareness of, of, of using water more efficiently. You know, the word conservation has been around for a long time. A lot of the public does, don't like that word because they think, you know, the government's going to say something that you have to conserve, which, which in California yeah. they've, they've done and say, okay, cut your water back 25%. I mean, it's getting to be where there's so much control over that. Agreed, we probably do not pay the true value of water. And, and most people don't realize that. It's like I always joke about going to a gas station and filling your car up. You stand there with the nozzle in the, in, in, in the uh, hole, but if you can see how much you're using the moment you're filling it up. But on your water bill, you don't see that till the next month. And people don't realize that. And, you know, other countries like in Europe and Israel and other places, Australia, I mean, the, the price for water is a lot more of the true value of it than what that we're paying for. My, my leading question to that is, do you see the IA, I know a couple of years ago, they they kind of uh, joined together for the, uh, an IA show with the plumbing industry. Do you think you might do something with other uh, industries related, like the American Water Works Association or, or something else, so it, it gets a bigger growing audience for that? You know, I think that's a great question. You brought up some, you know, a, a wonderful point around strategic alliances and looking for um, alignment of interests. For me, you go back to what is irrigation, the why is irrigation. And you, you, it, it's not, it's that idea that water is a precious resource. And we, you know, thinking of sustainability and conservation, you know, I, I think of this as it's an opportunity to lead in innovation and look at how we can partner with these other organizations so that we can get the story out about the positive impact of irrigation on water, but not just water, but on community and on business, on our, on our health and on our safety. And I think when, when I look at where our opportunity is, when it comes to workforce development, you brought up a great point earlier about bringing new uh, new people in and the next generation into to this industry, they get captured by the why. They, you know, this is this is really about what irrigation affords. Uh, I was doing some deep diving as as you know as I was learning about the industry and and IA. And one of the things that just struck me was a really simple sentence that said Irrigation is ultimately what made civilization possible. Yeah. And I thought to myself, spot on. Yeah. Well, we always, Chris and I always say, you can't have green unless you have blue. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we certainly we certainly believe in that. And Chris has been in the industry way a lot longer than me, but but that's that's sort of the tr the truism of uh, of where we stand every single day. As Chris said, we we go out and do all kinds of events and promotions. And we get, we, I'm not bragging that we get lots of awards from, you know, the U S Congress and such on our education and outreach programs, but that's, that's what it takes. And, you know, the more organizations that bound together and go march in Washington uh, and knock on senators and congressmen's doors, that's, what's going to get attention. Cause they, when they start seeing the brewing of people and organizations banding together, it's going to make them listen more. I think. Yeah. You know, well, I, 
Go ahead, Natasha. Well, you know, I think you're you're right on in terms of bringing those voices to Washington, and I would be an equal and ardent advocate for also making sure that those voices are heard at home. You know, I've yeah. I have worked on the Hill. I I know a lot of the um, you know the the staffers. I I understand hopefully some of the process. And one of the things I do know is they want to hear from you. They don't want to hear from me. They want to hear from their constituents. They want to hear from the businesses that are in the people in their districts, in their states. They want to hear about the impact of the regulate, you know, of 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 the laws and regulations on on their constituents and, and on on or from their constituents on those businesses and on those communities. And so, I I think the the greatest opportunity that we are looking at is really creating a network of champions on on the local level who can bring that that expertise, that passion, those stories that bring that really do bring water to life and and bring irrigation to life. Yeah, quite true. Another con another thing that uh, struck me as a, as a thought when you were talking about <clears throat> um, regulation and and uh, you know its its role in our industry, right? The IA has been instrumental in the EPA's water sense program from the beginning, 16 years ago, back in 2006 when it was when it was developed. The IA was right there, and and, and they developed it in partnership with um, uh, with the EPA. But a lot of our listeners, because you know, I, I just looking at, again at the reader comments here, you know, they don't realize that that the WaterSense program is is uh, completely voluntary, right? I mean, manufacturers, contractors are in it on a voluntary basis. It is actually non-regulatory. So, you know, just want to point that out to to some of our listeners. I think you know, you bring up it, it is it is it, it, it's voluntary, and not only is it voluntary, sometimes it's leading the regulations. I, I, you know, when 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 we're able to bring our our research, our our voices, our our thought leadership to the table to, and together to be creating programs like WaterSense, we're we are in a position to be leading any sort of or or really leading regulation. You know, getting being able to show that this that this is a, a community and an industry and businesses that, and people who are, um, who are looking out for the, the greater good yeah. makes, makes sense. And I, I'm really excited about uh, being able to, to continue you, our continuation of that program, being able to build on that. Well, I know you, oh, go ahead, Chris, sorry. Uh, no, Rob, I was just going to point out, you know, I mean, the, <laughs> You know, everybody talks about how how the how the industry is um, uh, is growing, and, and it certainly has in my tenure in uh, in this industry. But one of the things I was going to point out from the IA standpoint, and and Natasha, feel free to uh, to comment or or answer this question. But there's been there's been so much difficulty in defining this industry, right? I mean, putting putting a label on it is easy, but I mean. You know, what's the parameters? How big is it? How many companies are there? What's the what's the net value of, uh, um, uh, of the industry? How many people are employed in it? Um, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, I, I certainly hope the IA is going to continue its, its role in, in that definition process and then collecting and sharing that data with the rest of the industry. You know, you this is a really key, really key component is data and research. 
And we brought up earlier uh, partnerships, strategic alliances, our ability to work with with others. Because one of the things I'm finding is that there are there are people, there are companies that are certainly focused on irrigation, but there's also a very large community uh, that has a they ha they are connected to irrigation. The you know our um, you know the, the the contractors of who are working with, um, especially in, in, in landscape and turf, are a great example where they may not consider themselves to be in irrigation, but they certainly are impacted by it, and they are being asked to provide their own expertise that they maybe don't have. And I think that's one of the areas that, as we move forward, is to make sure that we are always looking at how can we do more to expand understanding, knowledge, um, maybe going into expertise, but to make sure yeah. that, that, that anyone who's, who's working with irrigation systems or around them, that they, that they have the information that they need to be successful as well. Yeah. yeah. And, and I see a lot more that the IA has done over the past couple of years, more than a couple of years, is, is, is working with the ag people and the ag uh, irrigation portion, which is really, really, really important. Um, but I, I know, you know, you had meetings with the the board, the board of your board of directors uh, recently, and probably uh, you've talked to several members on and off before the meeting. How have they identified the challenges for the IA and the industry with you, and, and shared shared their objectives and what do they believe? Well, what is wonderful about having a board is that you get unique perspectives from everyone. And as CEO, I get an opportunity to listen and then hopefully share back what I've learned so we have that, that focus and direction. There are, there are themes that are coming up. I, I mentioned them earlier. I think the, you know, if we're, if we're talking about challenges, to me, we're talking about opportunities. And the biggest challenge and opportunity that I see is making sure that we are out there and defining the value or the why of irrigation, that we're able to tell the story by the people that are living it every day. And I think that's, you know, whether, whether that story is being told to uh, leaders on Capitol Hill, whether it's being told in the media, whether it's being told to our own, our, our, our own communities and family or to, to, to clients is we, we have an opportunity to celebrate and be proud of the role that irrigation plays in in this nation, really in the world, and 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 um, the value that it contributes. Good, Chris. Yeah, I couldn't say couldn't say it any better. I mean, I wish we I wish we had a, a whole hour, but I mean, this is just pointing <laughs> to the fact, Natasha, that we're going to have to have you back on the show because we haven't even really touched on. on on how on you know conservation and stewardship and innovation and and uh, the IA's role in that that is a separate topic um, <laughs> and the good and the good books and publications they offer through their uh, their service oh, which yeah. is really really great really really yeah. great for people yeah, not only absolutely. in the industry for for your, for life but also newcomers they can they can go and, and purchase a bunch of uh, uh, information and books uh, uh, trading information from you guys which is awesome. Yeah, I, I I will welcome you inviting me back because this is for me this is as much part of my own learning. I got a new resource out of out of today. Um, not only the two of you and Toro, which I thank you, D 
deeply. I know the, the amazing work and support that you provided to uh, the IA's E3 program. That's, you know, that is a wonderful contribution to some of the, the opportunities that we have. And I even got to hear about Maven's notebook added yeah. to my list. Yep. And I, I really encourage you both and, and anyone who's, who's listening to, um, you know, I, I want to hear the stories. I'd love to know some of the resources and people I should know and very much look forward to being invited back and diving into those other topics. And hopefully by then, I will have had a chance to do a little bit more listening, absorbing, and learning. Yeah. Well, it may, it, it may be a sneaky question or maybe too early to ask, but, you know, at, the, at, at this point, you, you know, how, how do you see the future of our industry? I mean, do you have, you have it gleaned enough yet to, to put... Um, put words to it? That is a great question. One that I think is, I'd love to follow up on. Yeah. But I will leave you with this. I am deeply excited to be here. And I think that this, the irrigation industry is incredibly essential to our society. And having had the opportunity to connect with so many members of the IA show, as well as in this last, I've, I've actually only been on board for about three and a half weeks, but having had the chance to connect with so many of the, the experts and our and our members and, and others, I'm incredibly excited to be able to bring my own passion and their passion together so that we can elevate our industry. Well, I can tell you, Rob and I are so excited that you came on, on the show so early. We thank you for that. You are certainly brave, Natasha, uh, to do that. And, well, and the, the most important question, if the President of the United States called you now after the show and offered you the position of czar of the irrigation world, would you stay with us or would you go with them? If it would, <laughs> if it would benefit, I would look at it as if it would benefit the industry, that's going to be my decision-making criteria. Good. We, appre we appreciate your honesty in that. Um, Natasha, thank you, thank you, thank you very much for, for coming on the show. We really enjoyed it. Our listeners certainly will do, uh, have done, and we have lots of those. And uh, you're, you are most welcome and your team anytime you want. Just let us know. And uh, as you know, we play your PSAs and all of those things. And any announcements you want, we'll be glad to do. And any kind of education stuff, we're there. Yeah, and thanks for staying up late. It's almost 10 o'clock where you are. That is all right. That is part of that is part of the joy of being able to uh, to meet up with you both and uh, look forward to joining you again. And for any of the listeners, I'm easy to find and look forward to hearing from them as well. Great. Well, we got to wrap up for the NBC News Hour because otherwise they're a little bigger than we are. So to our listeners, thank you uh, for listening in. And remember, the most important thing that Chris and I always tell you is please help keep our planet blue. blue. Good night, everybody. Talk to you next week. CAA Loma Linda, 1050 AM, 106.5 FM, and now 102.3 FM. Mm -hmm.